1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Gruyere cheese was created in 1115 in the commune of Fribourg in a small medieval village called Gruyere. It was only in 1602 that the cheese became known as Gruyere without the S. Today, 200 village dairies and 50 alpine dairies from five select cantons still follow the original recipe for this pressed cheese.
2: What makes Gruyere cheese Gruyere? Well, it's no longer because the cheese comes from the Gruyere region of Switzerland and France. A federal appeals court has ruled that, like feta, munster, or parmesan, Gruyere can be produced anywhere and sold as Gruyere here in the United States. Joining me is an expert in trademark law, Professor Willa Jean McLean of the University of Connecticut Law School. This case came about because groups representing cheese producers from Switzerland and France were asking the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for a mark that would restrict the use of gruyere to cheese from the gruyere region. Tell us about that.
3: So what they were looking for is to get what's known as a certification mark, which is a form of trademark. And what a certification mark does is show compliance with a set of standards. So like the underwriter's lab mark, it's not used by the owner itself. It's used on products made by others saying this product was made according to our standards and therefore it gets the seal of approval that it emanated from the Gruyere region which is in France and Switzerland.
2: And the fourth circuit ruled that the term Gruyere is generic as a matter of law. What significance is that?
3: So a term that is generic can never function as a trademark because It's a term that is needed by all to use. For example, you can't get a trademark just for bank for financial services because other financial services need to be able to use the term bank. So the question that gets asked, and this is a simple form of determining whether or not a term is generic, is to ask, who are you? What are you? If the answer to who are you is where do you come from, you come from La Gruyère in Switzerland, then it operates as a mark. If it answers what are you, i.e., what are you Gruyere, cheese, then it's generic. And so what the court was looking at is the question what the primary significance of the term Gruyere is to the consumer, right? Does it describe the type of product rather than the producer? If it's the type of product, then it's generic should be out there for any cheesemaker who makes it according to the FDA regulations to say, here is Gruyere cheese.
2: In its opinion, the court went through the history of Gruyere to determine how cheese consumers in the U.S. think of it.
3: You know, they basically think of it as a type of cheese that has a particular flavor. You know, part of the problem, I think, is that the French and Swiss makers didn't police the use of the term gruyere. Well enough, and so if it's been sold in the U.S. since 1987, it was only in 2012 when they woke up and said, "Ooh, maybe we better start saying Gruyere can only come from this specific region," you know. And by that time, the horse is out of the proverbial barn. They never challenged the FDA designation of what. Gruyere was, that was in 1977. So they let too much time elapse. I think that's part of their problem.
2: The French and Swiss groups also complained that the case was decided at the summary judgment stage, and those opposing the geographic indicator hadn't submitted a consumer survey into evidence. And the court said this argument slices the cheese too thinly. Did the court make this decision without any consumer surveys? Is that unusual?
3: So that's an interesting question. I when I I teach my class I say consumer survey, consumer survey, consumer survey. But there are precedents, there are cases in which they say consumer surveys are great But if you have overwhelming evidence that the term is generic, we don't necessarily need a consumer survey, and the the consumer survey wouldn't necessarily have changed the result. There are other ways in which evidence can be produced as to whether or not a term is generic, Uh, how is it used in the press. Does it appear in a dictionary to give an idea of how the general public views the term?
2: The French and Swiss groups said they've been, as you mentioned, they started this about 2010. And they said they're going to still continue efforts to protect the Gruyere name, vigorously continue efforts to protect the Gruyere name. Is there anything else they can do besides try to get the Supreme Court to look at this?
3: They can try to get the Supreme Court to look at this. I'd be surprised if the Supreme Court took this case. Um, You know, that's that's the next level, right, would be to take it to the Supreme Court. I think they have a hard road to hoe.
2: The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and the district court judge, ruled the same way as the Fourth Circuit. So this was sort of an expected decision that the Fourth Circuit didn't do anything crazy here?
3: I don't think the Fourth Circuit did anything crazy. Now, you know, the district court got this on appeal from the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. And one of the things that the district court has to do, according to the Fourth Circuit, is to look at all the evidence afresh from the the beginning, de novo. And so it gave little deference to what the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board decided. And so it took everything that the, the parties brought, they had more evidentiary information and they came up with, yes, the TTAB is right, this is generic. The question comes to the Fourth Circuit, they look at what the district court did There were a couple of things that they said, you know, the district court should not have done, but on the whole, it was a reasonable decision.
2: And the Fourth Circuit said it's widely considered among the greatest of all cheeses, according to the Oxford Companion to Cheese. Oxford Companion to Cheese saying that it's widely considered among the greatest of all cheeses. It's widely considered among the greatest of all cheeses, according to the Oxford Companion to Cheese. Thanks so much, Willa Jean. That's Professor Willa Jean McLean of the University of Connecticut Law School. Tiger Woods is calling the woman suing him for $30 million just a jilted ex-girlfriend. Erica Herman claims Woods tricked her into leaving the home they lived in together for six years and claims she still had five years left to stay due to an oral agreement. But Woods says there's no such oral tenancy agreement. To add to the legal complications, Herman is attempting to break out of the non-disclosure agreement she signed in 2017 when she began dating Woods claiming it's unenforceable under a federal law that nullifies NDAs if there are matters involving sexual assault or harassment. Joining me, Dominic Romano and Daniel Braverman of Romano Law. Dominic, what do we know about the NDA?
1: All we know about the NDA is that there is an arbitration clause. The reason that's all we know about the NDA is because the entire confidentiality agreement has been redacted, save for the arbitration clause.
2: Do we assume she wants to get out of the NDA because it requires confidential arbitration in all disputes between the parties?
1: Exactly. That's the stated reason anyway.
2: Let's talk about why her lawyer says that agreement is invalid.
1: They're using four grounds. They're saying that the court should grant a declaratory judgment invalidating the NDA for two reasons. The first reason is there wasn't sufficient consideration and because it's unconscionable. The second reason is because the scope of the NDA is overbroad. But the third and the fourth reasons are the ones that raise eyebrows. They're saying that the NDA is unenforceable in this case because it calls for an arbitrator to decide the dispute under the federal Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021. And the fourth and final reason They're saying that the Woods NDA is not enforceable in this case, interestingly, under the Federal Speak Out Act, which invalidates NDAs where there are claims of or allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault.
2: In a civil cover sheet, her attorney indicated no when asked if the case involves allegations of sexual assault. Did you see anything in the papers that? Made allegations of sexual assault or harassment?
1: No, and that's the curious thing about this filing. The original lawsuit was over an oral tenancy agreement filed in Martin County in Florida. The original filing made no mention and had no allegation of sexual assault and sexual harassment. It seems as though in response to the motion to compel arbitration, they are now arriving at this avenue interesting legal tactic of the sexual assault and sexual harassment angle as a way of overturning not only the forced arbitrations, but also the NDA itself in its entirety.
2: Dan, tell us about the oral tenancy agreement she's claiming they had.
1: You know, they had a, they had a relationship. Herman claimed she was promised
4: that she would have a tenancy in his home and that that period of time was five years that already took place and that there's another six years that she's entitled to live in that home. So she's claiming it's totally oral. There's nothing in writing. She hasn't produced any type of documentation. And what we find interesting, obviously, is that Obviously, when there was a need to enter into a non-disclosure agreement or um, an arbitration agreement, that's clearly in writing. So it does seem, at least in my opinion, seems interesting that if someone's going to enter into an, a tenancy agreement, almost like a lease, or to agree to let someone live in your house for a, for a very long period of time, you would expect there would be some type of writing that would reflect that. But this is an oral agreement that she's claiming exists, and she's claiming that she was forced out of this home in violation of, of that oral agreement.
2: At trial... Let's say this gets to trial and it's not settled. Other than a he said, she said situation, are there other ways that she could prove an oral tenancy?
4: You know, we deal with this a lot, and an oral contract can sometimes be just as valid as a written contract. What you'd have to do is you'd have to testify, and obviously we see this all the time. Some people are more credible than others, so it will be under oath testimony. In addition, you may have witnesses. it may be people that you told about this tenancy, or maybe that, assuming it did exist, the Tiger Woods might have stated it to someone else. So there might be other people that potentially could come forward. But as you point out with your question, obviously much, much easier to prove a tenancy agreement or any type of agreement for that matter. It's to have something in writing, whether it's a text, email, some type of written communication. And as of now, that doesn't seem to exist because I would be shocked if that did exist. Why would not be in the complaint that was filed?
2: The damages are an eye-popping $30 million based on the rental value of that property. What kind of property is it? I don't
4: know. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's a huge home. I'll put it that much. But, I mean, she's obviously claiming that the value of six years would be $5 million per year. And that by her being removed from the home, that she should be entitled to $5 million for each year that, you know, she would have otherwise been in that home. I agree it's an eye-popping number. I'm not sure if that was done purposely. Obviously, that's what's grabbing everyone's attention. But in the statute, it does allow for, under Florida law, you know, for certain types of damages if you're wrongfully excluded from, from your residence.
2: Herman claims that Woods used premeditated prohibited practices and trickery to get her to leave the mansion. Wood says that he arranged for her to stay at a local luxury resort and provided funds she could apply toward a new residence. So does it matter under Florida law?
1: I
4: think generally the answer is probably not, it's not a tremendous amount of a difference, but obviously if you were on the fence as to whether or not somebody was, you know, wrongfully excluded from the home or kicked out of their house without proper procedure, the more interesting, I'll put it that way, the facts that are alleged of how that was done, I think it might help persuade a judge or or a jury or, you know, an arbitrator that you were wrongfully treated in this matter here. As we know, what we've been reading is apparently, I think the claim is that she was told she was going on a a vacation or some type of trip, which got her to pack bags, probably sufficient to be out of the home for a period of time. And that once she was out, she was told that the relationship was over and that she was no longer welcome.
2: Do you think the likelihood of this is a settlement, that this is done to perhaps negotiations fell through and the latest is intended to drive up the settlement numbers in a larger
1: amount? 100%. Two things on that point. Number one, I wonder whether this entire dispute could have been, would have been avoided if a different method had been used at the outset. You know, had she not been basically accosted at the airport by a couple of his people, according to reports, and and told she's barred from reentering the place where she'd lived for a number of years, if this might have been resolved privately and confidentially at that point. And at this point, it's highly likely in my view that this entire initiative, the objective, the end game here is to expedite the inevitable settlement that is highly likely to occur here.
2: Dan, do you agree?
1: I I do. I do. And I think it's also important to look at like the procedural
4: history of this matter. You know, the complaint initially was filed when she was removed from the home in October, 2022. And if you look at that complaint, it's an oral tenancy agreement. I mean, the goal here was she was suing because she believed she was entitled to be in that home for another six years, and she was suing for $30 million. There was no suggestion of any other wrongdoing, et cetera, allegations, et cetera. After she filed that complaint, Woods' team filed for arbitration, saying that the nondisclosure is enforceable. And more importantly, or equally importantly, all her claims have to be in arbitration. And then after that was filed. Then she filed a new claim, which was just filed earlier this month, which was trying to get the NDA declared unenforceable, as well as get a ruling that the matter isn't arbitrable under those two laws that Dominic cited earlier, which is under the Speak Out Act, etc., and the end of forced arbitration. But what's interesting about it is when you look at the new lawsuit, that new lawsuit, although there aren't specific allegations, just the mere fact that it mentions potential allegations, or at least if you're bringing a lawsuit to have something invalidated under a law, that only allows you to invalidate it if you're making sexual harassment or sexual assault allegations. It makes someone wonder, do you have those allegations? It just makes you question that. And I think that threat or that concern, as well as the publicity of it, might be enough to make someone want to resolve the suit, whether they did anything wrong or not. So I think that's that's an important point that I, that I see from the procedural history that we've seen in this matter. When- and June, I
1: would add to that, not only to resolve the dispute in an expedited matter, probably with a higher settlement sum that might have originally been agreed upon had these claims, these additional claims, not been made because they present greater reputational hazard to the celebrity.
2: Where does the six years come from?
1: My best guess is it may be related to the age of one of the children. It seems like an odd number. Not 10 years, not 5, not 15, but 11 is what was claimed, and that's where there's five years left, and where we get the $6 million a year value from by deduction, but it's not specifically explained in the pleadings why this alleged oral tenancy was for 11 years. Interestingly, she's claiming value of the entire residence, but she didn't live there alone. She lived there, obviously, with him. And as we understand it, according to reports, two of his children.
3: Yeah, he has two. So hands.
4: arguably I guess the thirty million could be a lot more or a lot less. So is the thirty million
1: just for her portion of the residence or is it for the entire residence? Yeah, it's unclear whether it's a yeah. partial or full tenancy of the entire estate.
2: According to Zillow, the Florida estate is worth forty five point eight million dollars. So here's the bigger question. How does a yes. rich person get out of a live in relationship? Here he had the NDA so that there would be arbitration. She's trying to get around that. So, what does a rich person do if he or she wants to have a live in relationship?
1: Uh, choose very carefully who your partner is. <laughs> a, B, these are brand new laws, relatively new. So, the, the, the first law, the forced arbitration law, only became active in, in March of 2022. So, it, it's been, it hasn't even been a full year. The Speak Out Act which was passed unanimously in, in the Senate, and I think over 350 votes in, in the House, that only came into play December, like less than four, four full months ago. So you know, it's gonna be interesting the way courts interpret these forced arbitration sections, and also the validity of these NDAs when there are even mere allegations of sexual harassment, let alone assault.
4: And I'll just say, I think also, and in, in, you know, I always think about this in my, my decades and decades of employment law, is that whenever you, the same way when you terminate an employment relationship, you want to do it with, with dignity, you want to do, treat someone with respect. We don't know exactly what happened here, but obviously the allegations of how the relationship ended and the alleged trickery of having a person believe they're going on a trip, only to find out that that trip is not on a nice vacation. It's, you know, it's, it's a permanent removal from, your, from where you're currently, where you've been living for the last you know, five or six years. I think the way things are done, also can help, you know, alleviate or uh, try to avoid situations where you get into, uh, you know, people might f- take things a lot more personally rather than, you know, view it a little differently.
2: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Dominic Romano and Daniel Braverman of Romano Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.